I'm Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy. And I'm Kevin Shives, Deputy Director of the International Forum. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast examining authoritarian influence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. In this episode, we'll be speaking with several experts on the topic of responding to China's malign influence, in particular, the ongoing crucial need to shrink knowledge gaps and to integrate specialized expertise on China into the response. We've covered the global China challenge to democracy before on our podcast, but we're zeroing in on an especially important aspect of response that we identified in our 2017 report, Sharp Power, Rising Authoritarian Influence, relating to the serious gaps in political literacy regarding China's efforts. Since that time, some societies have fared better than others in response to China's outward-facing influence activities. Kevin has a long track record working on China issues and how non-governmental and governmental actors can adapt to address the growing impact that China is having on democracy around the world. Kevin, what was your thinking about why we're doing this episode? Thanks, Chris. So really, I would point to two trends that really put this specific, but I think highly critical challenge into stark relief. So first, China is closing in so many ways. The China that foreigners like me were able to access in the 90s and 2000s fairly easily for cultural experiences, exchanges on political topics, even fairly sensitive ones, language training and the like, that China unfortunately no longer exists. As Xi Jinping rose to power, the CCP's political and social imperatives began to be perhaps the most critical force underpinning every sector's activity within China. Personal loyalty to the party and really ultimately to Xi himself has become more imperative for citizens, ethnic minorities, universities, and ultimately businesses. And this slowly expanded to foreigners living in China and interacting with China abroad. The hostage-taking of foreign academic researchers for political gain and China's zero-COVID policy really turbocharged this trend of China closing itself off to the world. Now, at the same time, China's impact in the world grew massively. Chinese businesses, capital, diplomacy, and state media entities grew rapidly throughout the late 2000s and 2010s. And they've really arrived on the scene now in a way that I think could overwhelm the ability of governments, politicians, and civil society actors in settings that didn't have a long history of interaction with China and could see these changes coming and ultimately be prepared to manage them. So it's in this context that over time we've seen how China, by virtue of the impact that the party has on so many aspects of China's overseas engagement, that it can really undermine key values of democracy, free expression, privacy, and the like. So You know, in short, I think the world is flying a little bit blind, perhaps, in its interactions with China. So among the questions I think we're hoping to answer today is we need to answer are, how do societies in which China is deeply engaging catch up and be better prepared? What's the most effective way to develop a risk-based approach within civil society, government, and the business community for dealing with China's challenge to democracy? That's great. So with that, let's get to it. Kevin and I interviewed three guests from different national contexts. He and I will speak with two experts together, John Fitzgerald coming from Australia and Niva Yao, who's from Hong Kong. And then Kevin will interview a third expert from Taiwan. To discuss these important issues, we're delighted to have two experts who bring key perspectives to meeting the China challenge. First, I'd like to introduce John Fitzgerald, who's a professor at Swinburne University of Technology. John has an extensive background in academia, as well as with the Ford Foundation in Beijing, and in recent years served as president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. We're also joined by Niva Yao, who's working at the OSCE Academy in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and that's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. She's a Hong Kong native and has a number of other affiliations, including at the Atlantic Council. John, let's start with you. Perhaps you could share with us how your focus on China has developed over time, and in the most recent period, how you have emerged as a leading voice in the response to outward-facing influence from the PRC. Thanks, Chris. So I was involved, I guess, for many, many years in what we might think of as benign influence operations, you know, regular public diplomacy 
between Australia and China at a reasonably high level in educational exchanges, cultural exchanges, and so on. Working right through the opening and reform period, which goes from about 79 through the 80s and 90s and into the early teens, building connections between civil society equivalents in, in China and in Australia that is cultural education, community bodies, and so on. But starting around 2005, 2006, 2007, we began to see some of China's activities shifting from what I think of as the benign end to the malign end of the influence spectrum. And it is a spectrum. So it seemed to us that authorities in Beijing were taking command of some of the networks and, and engagements that we'd set up, which were really, not, if not spontaneous, at least genuine, and, and turning them to fairly malign purposes. This is using covert, coercive, and even corrupt interference operations in this country. In recent years, we've come to define malign influence as being associated with covert, coercive, or corrupt influence operations. Influence operations, fine. But this kind of malign influence through coercive and corrupt operations we regard as malign. So given my, shall we say, passionate commitment to benign public diplomacy, I threw myself into fighting this. It, it seemed to me that if we didn't call it out, something could go terribly wrong in bilateral relations. So starting around 2005, 2006, I began writing about this, making submissions to Senate inquiries, saying that bilateral relations would suffer terribly unless China stopped some of these interference activities in Australia. I think that was there's a message in a bottle that just went nowhere at that time. And it wasn't for almost another decade before we picked that up again. I was out of the country for a lot of that time and happened to be in, in China uh, working with the Ford Foundation, wonderful organization, which worked with terrific people in China in educational and cultural and social issues. Through that experience in China from about 28 to 2013, I came to see how bad things were getting for civil society and began myself to research this and, and research it in concert with others. And so when I came back to Australia, I was sort of more or less up to date, I suppose, on what was happening in China and the Communist Party's approach to civil society, which was dramatically tighter than it had been in the earlier period. And over that time, I also developed very close relations with Chinese-Australian friends and colleagues who were sharing their stories of intimidation in Australia, particularly from that period, 2013, 14, 15, 16. And many said they couldn't speak for themselves and were dispirited that others were not speaking out on their behalf. And why couldn't they speak out? For fear of reprisal. So that gave myself and others an added incentive to go public on some of these issues. And so, John, maybe I'll just follow up quickly before we turn to Neva. So in essence, the, the turn at the domestic level within the PRC in terms of the authorities' treatment of civil society was also an indicator to you that the application of this kind of repression could be applied uh, beyond the PRC's borders. That's correct. And when I returned to Australia 2013, I found, through, just through conversations with old friends, that um, local Chinese community media was being intimidated, much as media in China had been in recent years, that there was penetration of local civil society organizations by the United Front system within China, which we could discuss in detail if you wish. But this goes back to the 1920s. My PhD was on the first United Front when the communists, in effect, penetrated the nationalist or KMT party sort of parasitically to turn them to their own purpose until they split in 1927. That was the way the Communist Party functioned. And this, I guess, alerted me to this parasitical style of political operation that the Communist Party was engaging, where it entered into other organizations and used those to achieve its strategic purposes. And that appeared to be happening in community organizations in Australia, in Chinese Australian community media, and more broadly, actually, in, in some elite circles in mainstream society. Thanks very much for that. Let me turn it over to Kevin to engage with Neva. Thanks. We're also delighted to have a, a real friend and colleague, Neva Yao, here with us. Neva and I have come to know each other through some recent China-focused convenings and conferences organized by another guest here on this podcast from DoubleThink Lab. Neva, you've really become a unique rising expert in this field, focusing for a while now on the variety of ways in which China has attempted to engage with and influence Central Asia's economy, politics, and really digitalization. And before we talk more about that and your global interest, talk a little bit about how you got into this work and why ultimately it matters to you. Thanks, Kevin. And thanks, Chris, for inviting me on the podcast. 
you know, really, and your kind words, Kevin, but I, in many ways, I don't think I'm so unique. I have a joke that everyone in Hong Kong grew up as an expert on mainland China. It's not really an exaggeration because, you know, Hong Kong, before the national security law, had a lot of excellent media outlets and journalists that dedicated their entire lives to journalism work on mainland China and everything that couldn't get reported in China was reported in Hong Kong. So we all grew up consuming news about what's going on 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 the mainland as much as we learn about what's going on at home in Hong Kong and also what's going on in Taiwan and other places with large Chinese diaspora communities. So as a community of people, we Hong Kongers are very global in our upbringing. Many have moved since the 90s, but constantly kept coming back. That includes myself. I got into this kind of work mainly because of some early personal experiences in my teenage years. When I was 13, I was sent to a boarding school in England. And over there, I met friends from around the world. And that's not not just different places in Europe, but places like Costa Rica, Kazakhstan, Jamaica, Thailand. And they were all so interested in the rise of China. And that was during the time of Chinese economic growth. So I was looking at China from a perspective of the world. And people had such positive outlook about Chinese development. And they were interested in what I know about China from a Hong Kong perspective. So Back then, I was already engaged in a little bit of research, analysis, and delivering thoughts on China. And I think there is a high demand for Hong Kong perspective on China issues. And this work personally matters to me because I think there's something unique that we can deliver to the field from a sense of ownership, but also global because of our connections to the world. You're absolutely right. A Hong Konger living abroad, what role do you see people like you with deep knowledge of and expertise and exp- experience with this really new to the stage global superpower? Do you think there's some unique insights or even role someone like you or Chinese diaspora organizations, which unfortunately now to developments in, in Hong Kong over the last few years are spread out among a number of places in the world? What role might they play in democracies undergoing these pressures from the CCP and, and Chinese participation? First, I think in itself, we are all excellent resources. We are already, in a way, trained in terms of knowledge on mainland China that is not found in you know many communities. But as a society on its own, we are educated about mainland China in many, many different ways. And that's not just from a Western perspective, but we have our own access to the Chinese society. Whereas sometimes what I observe from not, not all of the scholars, but I would say a great proportion of scholars would have access to Chinese high-level officials, which is is great and the Chinese middle class which is great but what about the grassroots lives of Chinese people on the mainland so this is the portion of the society that we Hong Kongers have a lot of interaction with as well so I would say our understanding is sometimes could be a little more holistic and the diaspora ourselves we have a sense of ownership when it comes to learning and talking about mainland China we are the people that mainland Chinese actually trust and we are in the end of the day at least how it's perceived on the mainland we are in the end Chinese so the ownership perspective is something that we can contribute that can be more effective when it comes to talking about China issues with mainland Chinese people for example and I think that this unique and localized identity of the Chinese diaspora actually poses a very serious challenge to Chinese Communist Party in their effort to establish itself as the authoritative voice over China affairs. And we, we see this from different areas that they operate. The members of this Chinese diaspora community have a due importance from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party. On one hand, we can raise a lot of unique questions and challenges to aspects of CCP governance because of our overseas experiences and our exposure to other norms, values, and system of governance. On the other hand, our community's ancestral ties to China is also perceived as a potential threat too, but it can also be a very convenient asset for influence work if they succeed. This is why the diaspora community has always been a prime target of PLC tactics. And in a lot of ways, you will see those diaspora who have been successfully co-opted by the PLC actually carry out their influence operations in their local setting, like election interference in Canada, lobbying in Malaysia, for example. And one of the key problems really is to help build a strong identity amongst the Chinese diaspora. I think this is where in democracies elsewhere can actually do more. For example, we Hong Kong Chinese have a very separate identity than mainland Chinese. And we are strong, very strong about this. And Singapore is trying to do this right now, making Singaporean Chinese a more distinct separate identity. This is very important because this is one 
important aspect of actually looping in the diaspora into understanding China, but from a different perspective. And I think other countries should follow suit. I see a lot of areas of improvements in Australia, for example, actually promoting better Australian Chinese identities, especially when it's much more complex. It's not just mainland Chinese coming from the mainland, but also Malaysian Chinese and other Chinese from Southeast Asia. But I think it's a key in deterring PLC influence towards this community worldwide. And Jack, maybe building on some of the points that Neva has made, in no small part due to the efforts of a number of Australian civil society figures and organizations, including your work, knowledge has grown relating to the PRC strategies, its successes and failures in exerting influence within democratic institutions and in democratic societies. Could you give us a sense of what you feel has been most important in the response in recent years to mitigate the malign aspects of the PRC's influence. Sure. Just as Neva was saying, the Chinese diaspora has played a very, very important role in this country in elevating public consciousness of the issues. I mean, it's a, an immensely diverse community, again, as Neva pointed out. There are about uh, close to one and a half million Chinese Australians and a population of about 25 million, but incredibly diverse, uh, with about a third born in China, about a third born in Australia, and about a third born elsewhere including Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, and so on. And that diversity is reflected in public conversations and now more widely acknowledged in the wider community. Just back to your question, it unfolded something like this. Again, starting in about 2013, mainstream media began reporting on malign influence activities in universities, particularly East German Stasi-style people informing on one another to the consulate in universities or within the community. And this was triggered by an earlier comment some years earlier that there were 1,000 community spies monitoring Chinese Australians. And this, these reports in 2013 appeared to confirm that. But as more and more stories came to light, it turned out it wasn't just the diaspora. It wasn't just you know, students or, or recent immigrants from China who were subject to this kind of intimidation and harassment, but that in fact there were interference, you might say, malign influence operations operating at really elite levels in political parties, among elected representatives, uh, in mainstream media, as well as in universities, retired public figures and ministers and, and business people and so on, were coming out supporting China's position on controversial issues in order to advance their own particular a personal interest. And this came to a head in 2016 when a federal sort of senator was compelled to resign after it emerged that he accepted a very substantial donation from a united front-linked diaspora Chinese businessman, not an Australian in Sydney, in order to change his political party, the Labour Party's position on China's claims in the South China Sea. So here we have business people making donations to political parties to secure a strategic objective for the Chinese state. It was shocking. And uh, the, the public uproar led not only to his resignation, but to broader inquiries into what was going on in elite politics. And then the, the federal government at this point really did begin to listen and introduced a new legislative suite, you know, that introduced around foreign interference, around intelligence and espionage, and also around state uh, federal relations in the federal system of government, how to manage international relationships at the local level. So it really shook up the Australian political system in important ways. It started out with stories coming out from the Chinese diaspora, but it really took off when it emerged that these malign influence operations were operating throughout society at elite levels, not overwhelmingly influencing political outcomes, but seeking to do so. And so, John, you've described a sequence of events in an open society in which key figures with Specialization on China, including yourself, helped the media understand the issues and bring it to public light, which in turn brought it into the legislative domain, which then had the effect of uh, stimulating further reform, is in, in a sense a mutually reinforcing set of circumstances. I'm just wondering, turning to Neva, in more closed environments like those in Central Asia, where China also is uh, deeply engaged on a number of levels, what do you see as the challenges where you don't have free media or meaningful independent civil society or political opposition, and you're trying to tackle these very complex issues of influence coming from Beijing? How do you see that? I think this is actually a very interesting question because people usually think if Russia or China is influencing a democratic country, then that's a problem. But actually, it's also a problem towards other authoritarian countries. As we know, Central Asia is 
overall, the re- regionally speaking, all very authoritarian in many ways, some more than others. But still, China and Russia are still problematic to these countries in different ways. So, for example, I want to highlight a problem in the region where the views of the Central Asian elites and the public is polarizing. And China is a big contributor towards this polarization of elite and the public. It's been about 30 years of independence and 30 years of intense economic engagement with China. But on the ground here, people don't feel the difference at all. They see that the elites are getting richer and richer. The public now, they perceive that elites are incredibly corrupt and they can't be trusted. Now, in turn, the elites are implementing more and more oppressive measures to target dissident voices, to target independent journalists who are uncovering all these corruption. And they are employing a lot of surveillance technology from China, as well as copying Russia's strategies to suppress civil society. This is on its own a problem that, you know, Central Asian elites are also dealing with, that they have to confront their own populations about Chinese influence. However much they see it as a transactional relationship with China, the public are not happy with this transaction. Although I would say that at the moment, I think there is a window of opportunity right now for more Western engagement because of Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine, this has made Central Asian elites very insecure about their future. And all this talk right now about a potential Chinese invasion in Taiwan scare a lot of them about China's role in the world moving forward. This is, this is where we're now. I would have had a very different answer to this a year and a half ago. And where do you see the most important response from within some of the countries that are politically repressive, say in Central Asia, to the PRC's growing forms of influence there? We see that actually some elites are trying to push back. So for example... In Kazakhstan, we see that up until last year's process of getting the first president, Nazambayev, away from power, we can actually see a lot of people, although they were using China as a factor of conversation, the way that different actors in Kazakhstan associated Nazambayev to as being a corrupt politician that sold Kazakhstan to China was an incredibly powerful strategy that actually got him off power. I think this speaks not just what the politicians actually feel about China, but it also speaks to the fact that China is innately aroused very strong sentiments from Central Asians. And I think for me, from this case and from other cases in Tajikistan, in Uzbekistan, I can also see that this relationship that Central Asian elites have with China is one of transaction. What this means is that they do not innately want to be allies of China. They're not allies of China, but they they are responding to the request from China for certain personal gain and that's about it and i think that if we can understand this really well this actually implies a lot of different areas of engagement with the central asian elites now that we know it's not about ideology neva i think that's really smart insight the role of corrupt local elites and perhaps how vulnerable they are to public sentiment or to other elite sentiment and china being involved in some of this as well presents some measures of opportunities in different societies including ones that are more closed to find ways to deal with with china's influence maybe we could just broaden the conversation a little bit and ask a question for both of you so so many societies are seemingly brand new to the china challenge and don't really have a deep well of experience experience, foreign language ability, or even a long history of the sometimes inevitable disappointments that China's economic provinces or propaganda has brought to these societies. This is really especially true in continents like Latin America or Africa, but it's true in many other regions as well. How can civil society organize itself to address this issue? Do you think it needs to build this type of expertise within its own civil society or rely on others like you or other organizations to provide that? John, let's start with you and then maybe hear from Neva. Yes, Neva's comments were really pointed, and I'd just like to confirm everything she said. It seems to me that where governments in countries that are new to the China challenge are dazzled by the allure of trade and investment opportunities with China, it's it's important always to remember that these allures really are packaged for the benefit of local ruling families and ruling elites, and that's the, the target audience in China, or on the part of China and its malign influence operations. So I hate to be a bit of a Cassandra when it comes to what this means for civil society, but it seems to me the first thing in the, in the face of this kind of approach from China 
The first thing civil society can do is preserve or look to preserve its independence and integrity in the face of suppression and surveillance, because that's what's going to happen. Advisors from China explain to the elites in such countries that if they really want to emulate China, they should crack down on civil society. Civil society is a sort of alien impost introduced from the West, designed to serve Western interests, not local interests. Now, that's far from the truth. Where civil society works effectively, it's always local. It's always local people focusing local issues, using local techniques and traditions and so on to achieve real outcomes for non-elites. But that's not what China's saying. It's saying, you know, if you want to emulate us, if you want to follow the China model, or rather they call it the China solution, the Zhongguo Fang'an, you just have to do what we do. We crush civil society. Just push it out of the way. It'll just get in your way. And in these circumstances, it seems to me extremely important for civil society organizations, if they're thinking about what they could do organizationally, it's not so much borrowing expertise, it's bedding down locally, ensuring, as I said, that they maintain their own integrity, their own local roots, local tradition, focus on local issues and draw on local people and elevate their concerns. There's certainly expertise available to assist them if they want it. And uh, I'm sure the NED would be happy to point people in that direction. But the first thing for civil society to do is to ensure its own survival and maintains its will to speak truth to power. Neva? Kevin, I think your question implied a very important mindset. I think there is a mindset coming from the PLC often that only the PLC have authority over talking about China affairs or assess the boundary of criteria of people who can talk about it. And of course, China then can control those criteria and make everyone else's views seem illegitimate. So these criteria we hear about it all the time, whether or not you speak Chinese, whether or not you actually lived in China, whether or not you know people in China, have access to officials, leaders, important people. And those are the criteria that dictate whether or not your views are actually legitimate or trustworthy or views that people should listen to. And I think a lot of people have this embedded in their minds, particularly journalists around the world who are not China experts, and they are afraid of getting into doing a topic about China. And a lot of people, I think, perceive this field of China research as a very hard field to get into because of all these different criteria that I just said. But in many ways, this is true. But I think when it comes to global China, about what China is doing outside of China, we need to break down this mindset. I think we need to break down this perception of barrier, especially amongst journalists, because we are no longer talking about investigating what China does domestically. We're talking about looking at what China does overseas, and there's almost no barrier to that. There is a lot of ways that one can access information without knowing Chinese or knowing anything about the China context. I mean, it's great when you have it, but breaking down this mindset is step one so that we can actually generate more views and incorporate more people into understanding China. Abroad. Yeah, I think you both really pointed to the power of local voices being both credible and also both capable, as you mentioned, Neva, of dealing with this challenge. Um, Chris, over to you. As we wind down the conversation, maybe just offer both of our guests an opportunity to speak a little bit more about how we can meet the challenge going forward, because in a sense, part of what we've seen is that it really is only a fairly small subset of countries that have the combination of independent institutions, some essential degree of China expertise, and are responding to the China challenge. And I would put Australia and Taiwan and perhaps the Czech Republic into this category. Once you get beyond those kinds of countries, it really becomes a question of how many countries are prepared, how many societies are prepared to deal with the full spectrum engagement that Neva and John have uh, described during this conversation. So turning to John first, maybe you can say a word about what you feel we need to prioritize in open societies going forward based on what we've learned in the last several years as a way of really growing the sort of resilience that can defend the integrity of our media, of our educational institutions, of our political institutions. What would you prioritize in this context? This is a terrific question. Sadly, I think universities are really not up to the task. My experience in Australia suggests, while they have many China experts and engagements, they're more likely to want to strike a balanced position on some of these issues, which I think call for really clear-cut 
value statements and propositions. So I found universities all but useless in this regard. That said, here, organizations like Human Rights Watch, international or local chapters of international human rights organizations have been very, very helpful in elevating public understanding. They're prepared to speak out and they have a clear set of principles to which they speak. And similarly, I think in, in, in many countries, there are organizations which are taking the lead and, and offering you know, online publications and guidelines about China's malign influence operations abroad. Just thinking across, say, Europe, we have Merricks in Germany, we have the Royal United Service Institute in the UK, uh, in Canada, the McDonnell Laurier Institute, there's Stanford Hoover, there's yourselves, and here, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. If you go online to any number of these sort of institutions, one will find papers, uh, research essays, and often resources, online resources, to help local communities and local organizations come to terms with the challenge of China's influence operations, wherever they're taking place. The resources are out there. Perhaps we could do a better job in, in promoting them. I think I agree with, with what John says. I'm just going to add one point on the narrative part. I think, I think the narrative part is also very important when it comes to messaging. Every single country have their own reason and their own perception of China. And I think when it comes to communicating the China challenge, the US has their own set of reasons for why China is a challenge. Australia has their own set of reasons why China is a challenge. And particularly in the global south, and I'm lumping global south altogether just because we don't have time to dissect each of the region. But for the global south, the global south have a very different idea of why China is a challenge. They are not worrying about China as the next leader of the global system. Global south's worry about China are much more practical and much more in real time. In Africa, when people talk about why China is a threat, they talk about, oh, Chinese managers abuse local workers. They say, oh, Chinese companies are destroying the environment and they are just taking the raw resources out of Africa, just like previous colonizers. And so I think these issues we must understand when we are talking about the China challenge to different actors because people have different reasons. And sometimes I've witnessed cases where people were trying to communicate the China challenge with their own reasons, not considering the person that they're speaking to. I think it's very important to keep in mind. So I think narrative is one thing and research comes into this in a big part because you want to know actually on the ground in different regions when people think about okay China is a problem what are the reasons that they really worry about and I think we have to do this in order not to impose our own thinking on others and really focus on what people are worried about and understand those better those are the things that we can work with partners when it comes to China. So this is a terribly important point to understand the local concerns and to differentiate the way in which China is perceived and also to make sure that local agency is really the driver of the China response, but also understanding that in many parts of the world, the capacity at the local level may not be aligned with the scale and scope of the challenge that's presented. I think all of these issues are the issues that we've been grappling with over time. And frankly, experts like you, Neva, and John have been so integral to helping the world understand so we can advance the cause. Just as a last item before we wrap up, I'd like to ask our guests for one recommendation for a book that they've recently read and would recommend or something they've listened to or or some item of interest to our audience on the subject. Maybe we can hear from John and then Neva to what they would recommend. There are a lot of really fine books around at the moment, Chris. And I must say, I really enjoyed Neva's comments there. I'd like to learn more about the Global South's approach to China at the present time. We need that book. But an eye-opener for me on, on this topic was Alex Josky's Spies and Lies, which came out last year. Uh, exposing the connections linking China's Ministry of State Security with malign influence operations overseas. And nobody's really made that point before. And, and for me, it was, it was quite a revelation that behind what I'd always thought of as United Front or Communist Party operations, in fact, sits the Ministry of State Security, which has very clear intelligence uh, espionage goals in mind uh, when it supports malign influence operations. And I think that's uh, it's quite an eye-opener. Neva? It's not a book. But there was a hearing earlier this year at the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission on China's military di diplomacy and overseas security activities. I am currently reading the long transcript of it because I think it's rather an understudied field and a lot of work should be done on the topic. 
we at the moment have a lot of conversations about the economic roles of China overseas, the debts issues, the abuse of local workers, environmental destruction, which are serious concerns of you know many countries in Asia and Africa. But I think going back to talking about we need to look at the narratives, I think we need to open new conversations and new narratives as well about China's role in the world. And I feel that Chinese security conduct overseas is one potential big topic in the coming years. That's great. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank John Fitzgerald and Neva Yell, my colleague Kevin Shives, for really a wonderful discussion on a complex topic that continues to evolve and we'll be tracking it closely. Separately, Kevin sat down in our studio to speak with TT Cat of DoubleThink Lab based in Taiwan, one of the organizations in the field that's helping to catalyze civil society responses globally to the China challenge by equipping local researchers and groups with tools and knowledge of China's impact in their home countries. This is Kevin Shives, Deputy Director of the International Forum, and I'm here today with a really exciting guest and friend. He's the co-founder and CEO of an innovative up-and-coming organization in Taiwan, DoubleThink Lab, Min Chuan Wu, uh, or AKA TT Cat. He has joined us. Before we start, I'd like to ask our guests a simple question on our podcast. What is your democracy story? How did you get to this point in your livelihood where the values of democracy, free choice, and the like have become important to your work, to DoubleThink Lab's founding, and really just how you see the world? And you've got to tell us how you became known as TTCAT as well. Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me here. My story started in 2004, so I have a unique chance at getting to the LGBT movement in Taiwan. But uh, back then, when I was 23, I don't even know what's a social movement or activism at all. I was just helping organizing the almost very first LGBT Pride in Taipei. Yeah, as a event organizers and also promote some of the demands or the advocating we do. Then. With some of the computer science background, after that, I also helped several human rights organizations or other civil society organizations to do websites or creative strategies, innovative work. Then I joined a wide range of the different movements in Taiwan, like environmental, green politics, and everything. That's when I start to think about the democracy all the time, especially during the 2014 Sunflower Movement. We've been thinking a lot about how the citizens should react with our government or public policies to be more transparent and to be more open. So 2016, I joined this huge global civic tech movement and also a community in Taiwan. That's how we know each other. The goal when we do promoting the civic tech is that we are thinking of open government, open data, how we brought citizens more close to the decision-making through the internet or technology. That's what we've been thinking, how we digitalize the democracy, how we make it more transparent, more open to citizens. But then soon, 2018, all this disinformation, not only in U.S., also in Taiwan, came in. Uh, we experienced a lot of uh, Chinese influence to our local elections and also a lot of uh, referendums that promote uh, democracy value or human rights or interfered by a lot of the uh, rumors or fake news. It's kind of chaos. Then I realized that until we solve this problem, we would never have any digital democracy, how you know people who having those debates online with you are actually citizens in your society. Actually, they are not bought. They are not influenced by other fake news. How we make sure everybody have information integrity and literacy or necessary resource and tool to help them navigate in those information. And also, as a matter of survival. Uh, so we think that Taiwan also need more people to delegate and to commit the work that understanding how the China propaganda and disinformation work, not only in Taiwan, but also in the whole global society. And so when you decided to start DoubleThink Lab, what was sort of the rationale for doing so? Why do you think Taiwan and really other places in the world might need a place like DoubleThink Lab. When we started the DoubleThink Lab, we are not thinking that we have so many expertise, we know China so much. We are thinking the other way. We think that at least we know 
the language. At least we know the culture. At least we experience those pressure、uh, for very very long time. Everybody has it. We are thinking that at least we can contribute a part to create a space or to, to create some project to bring more experts to come in. That also we want to learn from them. So that's how we start. And the reason is that I was one of the people that oftentimes think that we need more China expert in Taiwan. Actually, I think everybody should be China expert in Taiwan. Consider the threats, the pressure we are experiencing. But actually, on the contrary, because I think, I think there's a reason that we are separate our path. In education, media, news, or everything out of China, but I will tell you that a normal citizen, like when you go to a supermarket, right, they are really not knowing or understand how China political system work. What's the CCP, PRC, and then their society, how they work? We can probably name like only five politician in China, right? But that shouldn't be the case, especially in Taiwan. We are such in the front light, and this adversary is threatening to invading us consistently. We should be like the place that everybody knows China, right? Out of this motivation, we are thinking that not only create this organization, but actually foster more. Local young people or talents or experts to become more understanding how their influence operation work and online and offline. Well, kudos to you and DoubleThink for thinking even beyond your own specific crisis and context. What Taiwan is facing. I once heard a, a fantastic human rights activist named Igor Blazevich, and he helped. Found the Prague Civil Society Center, and he once challenged a, a room that I was gathered in to have every civil society activist and organization spend 25% of their time thinking beyond their own borders, learning from others, perhaps impacting others. And I'm thrilled that DoubleThink has devoted itself to that 25% in a really strong and purposeful way. Before we talk a little more about the issue of, of China expertise, DoubleThink has really been at the forefront of addressing China's malign influence, obviously in the information sphere. It's obvious that. China really has long hoped to interfere with Taiwan's political climate and social context to create a more pro-Beijing atmosphere. You and other organizations have researched this heavily, but I think what maybe is not so well known is how Taiwan's civil society has mobilized, oftentimes alongside its government, to highlight Beijing's effort and strengthen the integrity of Taiwan's information space and political discourse. What has been DoubleThink's role in this effort? How has Taiwan's civil society risen to the occasion to this rather fundamental and really quite vital challenge for itself? I think 2014 is actually the tipping point for a lot of the traditional civil society organization actually thinking about the China threats or the China influence into our politics. But it's until 2018 that we see the more and more new organization form or community or activists to come up to fight against disinformation part. Also from the organization like us or the organization that focus on how China invest those investment into our. Security or sensitive sectors. So there's a multiple different civil society actually drill into the space and try to use a different approach. Some is do policy recommendation or advocating for new regulation tools. What we do here is also try to work with the Taiwanese organizations, civil society, and also beyond in a regional scope. We do. Different type of a work. One is that we do investigation the online information manipulation. So basically, we track down those cyber troop and stay linked has stay linked to PRC or attributed to China actors. So for that kind of a work, for example, we are working with a fact checking initiative or community or researchers, and we are committed to have more program right now. It's expanded to Southeast Asia to find more talents there and join the tech force and do more research. On the region,、uh, not only in Taiwan, we monitor the elections, Taiwanese election, and see what's the narrative they've been pushing to influence our voters. Last year, when the war come up in Ukraine, first hundred days we do daily update on how China state media are replicated Russia narrative into the whole Chinese speaking community. Not only in Taiwan, Malaysia, but also there's throughout through the. 
Chinese app or their media outlets is into a lot of a different uh, diaspora community. Another work we do is psychological research, and we try to understand who is the main target audience and why they believe such narrative, and what's their real motivation. Maybe they're out of a fear or they feel injustice of our system, and how we work with other civil society organizations to find a new way to engage with them, not just debate with the facts, but also actually to help undermine those impacts on them. And not to mention like CITW's uh, network initiative, China in the World, that we've been able to connect with the global um, audience and a global civil society organization that care about the China influence in different regions. So for our work, our model is we want to do study or do advocating in Taiwan at a sense, but we want to work with other civil society organization to leverage this democratic union correlation and have the joint power to, to achieve our goal. Yeah, this type of open collaborative atmosphere for cooperation within a local context or more globally, it's fantastic that DoubleThink's really embraced that, that Taiwan has really embraced that. That's shown to be very effective, as ARF Research and others have, have shown in Ukraine, for example, and the type of cooperative relationship their civil society has had with their government and being able to collaborate in a very open way, use advanced tools, many of which are certainly at play with Taiwan. I know Taiwan is one of the first places to have a digital minister, for example. These sort of things are, are really important, vital preparations for any sort of information operation coming from a powerful adversary as this Taiwan's facing with the PRC. Let's turn to this issue a little bit of China and the world and your network. DoubleThink, you guys, as you've talked about, really began as a research and analysis organization devoted to keeping the Taiwanese public informed, but you've also adopted this global mission um, for the democracy and tech community to deal with the China challenge. Tell us a little bit more about that admission. Why do you think it's necessary? What do you really hope to achieve? The USCC hearing happened yesterday that we see not only DoubleThink Lab, our um, chairperson there, but also a wide range of the experts there, testimony from different aspects and different sector. But the main thing they are talking about is that how PRC extend their influence and interference and their effort to look, to push in their narrative. And I think that that's what we experience in Taiwan for a very, very long time, is that we see their primary goals is to divide and polarize society. In Taiwan, you see it's either poor China in a way, or poor Taiwan identity at least for another way. And there's more and more people, especially after the 2018, aware there's a Chinese disinformation campaign or influence operation into United Front work into the Taiwan society. But the, the result is that people who are poor Taiwan identity, they are afraid. They don't want to be unified, of course. So out of the fear, oftentimes or net most natural uh, choice is asking our government to give them more power to do censorship. Any kind of the China-related stuff or content or news or anyone who shows a little bit friendly with the PRC should be canceled or should be out. We see that as a challenge as it's actually more divided our society in the way they respond. And But the, the real problem is that how we build up a new nation or how we build our own society from a way that is non-nationalist to utilize the democratic system we already have and fight for a very long time, the human rights value, everything, freedom of expression, how we keep those things, why we are having this coercive and um, repressions from this superpower country, our neighbor. So I think we consistently thinking that a lot. We want our people out of the influence from PRC, but we also don't want them to go to the path that is show extremely right wings or nationalism. So for us, our approach is that if we can as much as possible provide evidence-based research or the tools or resource for our citizens to point out who is the actual China agent, where is their actual United Fund work activities come in, whether there's a money floor or information floor, and those type of things to help our citizens to navigate 
in this information space. One product that you built to facilitate knowledge sharing about China's influence in the world is the China Index, which you've just recently launched. It's partnered with organizations stretching from across 82 countries and nine domains to measure PRC influence well beyond the information space where DoubleThink is, is certainly an expert in. What surprised you about these findings that you didn't really expect going into this whole effort? Yeah, it surprised us, of course, how hard it could be. Um, we didn't expect that, oh, this is super challenging work. I'm happy that we come up with some good result. The original story behind is that we have this idea out of the grassroots community in Southeast Asia, right? So when people get together at a one convenient, we try to map out the Chinese influence or activities in different countries with Southeast Asia activists. Then what surprised me at first is that how little we know about those things happen in our neighborhood and countries. And also, for instance, like Cambodia has experienced so high of the influence from the PRC and also their deep of the corruption, how deep their government collaborate with a PRC government. That's a very little for us to know. So we also see a lot of a gap for finding those evidence or research in a region. So at first, we want to come up with a tool or a project for people to easy to digest and to be able to compare the Chinese influence in different places and also to see what's their common strategy and also the nuance between different countries and region. I guess Back to your question that what surprised us is the, the ranking itself surprised us. We never thought that Peru will come to the top five of the country or South Africa or Cambodia, Singapore, Thailand will so much ahead. We also surprised that Taiwan is not number one in the total score, but still we are number one in the society and the media domains. We surprised by how Germany and the UK will be the number one and number two in the European region, and also how much people are actually reaching out and to show the deep interest about this project, and they want to collaborate with us. Yeah, so so far we have 150 articles citing the index, introduced the index in different media in 15 language and not to mention also global voice they just did a very good project for in-depth analysis for the index data so that's also a joint effort and out of the china index you see this community is forming because they have this common methodology and to look into those data they want to learn from each others right so that's how we actually can grow this community all together yes Talk a little bit more about that relationship with, with some of your partners. I imagine, you know, when you go to a place like Singapore, the amount of China expertise and knowledge about what China is doing there might be a little bit easier to find or might be quite high. But you go to a place further afield in certain places in Africa or Latin America, maybe that experience and expertise is a little bit smaller. What did an experienced organization like DoubleThink bring to that relationship? What sort of capacity existed among some of these partners? Yeah, that's a hard part, right? So we've been uh, working with a different partner. Some of the partner, they has the background of the Chinese expertise or Chinese study, but some they don't. Or they are only focused on a specific domain like media or other stuff. So I think the index with those index committee to propose those indicators for the whole index, I, I think that itself is actually helping a lot of uh, local partners to understand that a different aspect of the Chinese influence, what it could be. So it's actually, we've been hearing a lot of uh, feedback from our local partners that they actually surprised about a lot of things they didn't know before. But with this exercise, they also get a chance to look into those stuff that happen in their own countries. I think that's a very good start, right? So then right now we are pushing some additional collaboration by a small community fund that if partners, they can work with the neighborhood countries or another country's experts by using or promoting the China Day index data to do advocating or to do in-depth analysis or comparison. So I think that's a ongoing process, but this process is also helping us to learn a lot of the things too and also start to thinking about what's the joint or global advocating 
response we can do from a civil society level to China influence globally. Because oftentimes China influence be categorized as a national security or foreign influence that is in, in the intelligence sector, military sector from different governments or like global politics. But actually, a lot of things happen is actually relate to people who live on the ground. For instance, like a corruption with their government or media or environment, land grabbing, or a lot of those things is actually related to people who live there. So I think this is a very good chance or time for us to working together with those global partners to think about what we can do as a civil society globally, uh, international. We can do our response to those influence. That's a great plug and promotion opportunity for people who are listening to this to be able to plug into your network and to help contribute to this. One thing that's uh, crucially important in addressing a global challenge like China that really many in society sometimes view through a geopolitical lens is the need to elevate local voices and local capacity to address this challenge. You mentioned earlier about your work and your goal to focus on the democratic values and not let the response to this information be one of nationalism or geopolitics, really, in this case. How do you develop this sort of expertise in societies or partner countries that you analyze through the China and the World Network at the China Index itself? China's economic, political, and informational influence in so many countries is, is relatively new. Yes. So I think uh, I don't have a good answer on that, right? So I don't know either. So we are just testing. But uh, for me, I think the first step is always transparent, right? So we open up those data. We work with the local experts or journalists to find out those evidence. So we start from there. Then we start from the, what is missing, what is the gap, what, where you couldn't find the evidence. Why is that, right? And I think China, good thing from the China index is because there's a more comprehensive different domains. So a lot of a civil society organization, actually they can find their entry point to engage with the Chinese influence topic. For instance, like a media watch group or a parliamentary watch group or anti-corruption kind of organization or environmental organization. They can find certain domains or indicators or data inside the China index to start from there and to raise more questions or advocating locally or regionally to come to that. But in terms of how we equip our partner to have those skill set or expertise to do more. I think this is a, um, also a question to ourselves. So we've been committed to working with our local partners and uh, in the region to do more and uh, to start to think how we decreasing or try to pull back a little bit from Cambodia or Thailand or their influence by PRC. How what civil society can do there to promote those data or do more activities for their citizens to undermine or reduce a little bit about those influence. So that's the practice and uh, the things we are really committed to do next. So in thinking about models like what, what DoubleThink and others have been able to achieve in Taiwan, or what Synopsis, for example, which we've talked about before in this podcast, has been able to achieve in the Czech Republic, what sort of skills do you think that civil society organizations need to have to address China's malign influence? What sort of training, language development alike might be needed? Or are the skills that DoubleThink or other organizations in places like Taiwan have, are they even needed at the local level to have the type of impact? Yes. So language scale is definitely one, but it's not the essential one. The essentially is that how the cultural difference, how we understand how PRC or China culture, the political, how they work, what's their relationship between the party and the government and the people, and what's the United Front work. A lot of people actually struggle with United Front work, how we define it, how we categorize the activities as a United Front work, because it's something that is not fitting to most of the democratic society and the system. So I think that aspect, particular aspect, is what we are able to contribute, not as a double thing lab, not only as a double thing lab, but also a lot of China experts, scholars, academics, they've been starting the United Front work for a very long time in Taiwan, and we here to be able to connect with those experts with our partner in the region. Well, Taiwan really does have a, a unique opportunity to impart the lessons learned in addressing the China challenge to democracy to other democracies around the world. Civil society organizations like you really are leading the way. 
Uh, what would you want other organizations around the world to know about this work and the opportunities for a more networked and knowledgeable response to the China challenge? I want to go back a little bit to talk about when we started Double Think Lab. I thought we are doing the work about disinformation or you know propaganda. It's like a narrative analysis. So we should not, as a frontline frontline organization, that against Chinese uh, pressure. But then, more I do this work, more I realize that no, the disinformation and propaganda is the core of the power of authoritarian. The reason they have so much power inside their own society is because those propaganda and disinformation that basically just lies. They build up their power by establishing different layers of the, those lies, conspiracy theories, attacking Western value, Western media, and Western governments, and to sort of changing the perception of everything from their citizen. You know, they are extend that to. Chinese diaspora community to other countries' citizens to make them think the way that the same ideology they are pushing up the the story, the narrative, and the way they want other people to think. So, I think the reason that Putin, Xi Jinping, those dictators, the reason they are double down their investment into propaganda, disinformation, or inference campaigns is because fundamentally they believe. That human is very easy to be manipulated, and I think it is us as a democratic correlation in the world, people who treasure freedom of expression and democracy, is our responsibility to prove them wrong. I think if start from there, we don't need to think about how we push our own narrative back to compete with theirs. I think we should consistently think about how we empower our citizen or people to be able to navigate in amount of information. How we make sure our citizen has the right tool to do the fact checking to increase their media literacy and so on. Any type of work that can empower people to have、uh, better media literacy or improve the me-、uh, information integrity, I think that worth everybody's attention and commitment. It's a perfect note to to end on. But before I let you go, we like to ask our guests for one recommendation for a read, a listen, or an event related to this topic or others that Ned and the Forum audience might be interested in. What's on your list, Titi Kai? I want to promote one of the China experts in Taiwan, which I really, really admire. He's Wu Jiaming, and he has a new book with another scholar. It's called "China Influence and Center Periphery: Talk of War in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Indo-Pacific." That's great. Well, thank you so much. And before I let you go, you again, <laughs> I don't think you told us how you got the name Titi Cat. So our folks who have stuck around with us for this lesson, they're dying to know how you got the name. Yeah, I had a cat. Her name was Titi. She's been with me for twenty years, and、uh, she's an angel now. So twenty years ago, I was a kid that I don't know much about English, so I don't have an English name. I use Titi Cat as my all my Alice handle online, so it's、Excellent. my hacker name. Well, in America, sometimes we say that、uh, we become a lot like our pets over time, and it sounds like you've really <laughs> taken that to heart. So, thank you for being here with us today, Titi Cat. Thank you, Kevin. These were really great conversations with three people who've seen a wide variety of responses to the CCP's malign influence. Kevin, what stood out to you? So, I think for me, all three of our guests, and and especially Titi Cat, highlighted the critical importance of understanding China's political system and methods of influence. First, on the Chinese diaspora and ultimately other societies through its united front work, knowing how the CCP intentionally cultivates relationships around the world in order to prevent domestic and foreign challenges to the CCP's position, and to do so in ways that corrupt these societies and their institutions, I think that's something that really needs to be understood more widely. You know, one of the conclusions reached in Freedom House's recent report on Beijing's global media was that, at least in Indonesia, there is also Generally limited in-country expertise on domestic Chinese politics or government structures that could provide useful context for the CCP's foreign influence efforts, including topics such as the organization and strategic priorities of the CCP's United Front Work Department. Now, if that's a worry and an anxiety in Indonesia, which is right along China's maritime periphery, consider much further away in Latin America, for example. 
where China's influence in the technology, political, and media sectors is very much on the rise. But in Latin America, there's very, with very limited exceptions, there's not as much extensive expertise on the, P on the PRC, its history or political system, and a very recent history only of intense economic and diplomatic interactions. I think addressing these knowledge and capacity gaps about key authoritarian powers like China and Russia, it's something we at the Forum, of course, have highlighted as far back as the 2017 Sharp Power Report, but also just recently in a paper that we put out how to address authoritarian influence, among other key global democratic challenges. I was glad to hear from our guests a few more details on how we could actually do that within the community of democracies. Uh, I think there's an opportunity then really for key research institutions, diaspora figures from places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, or oppressed ethnic minorities to work with, to train others, and to shed light publicly on the CCP's methods and societies grappling with their response. Really, just to, to quote and reference Neva here, the CCP shouldn't be the only one to have sole control over the China narrative. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Kevin. Uh, one of the things that comes up routinely in our conversations um, that go beyond uh, the great guests we've had on this podcast is just how these persistent uh, literacy gaps on the CCP, uh, how it operates um, domestic politics and the level of repression within China, um, how often it's the case in many parts of the world where there's just very thin knowledge of that and how that puts local societies at a disadvantage. And it really speaks to the need to find new ways to empower uh, local civil society groups, independent media uh, on the ground in the countries that are trying to make informed decisions about the way in which they engage with uh, China and China's proxies. And this is something where uh, a good deal of work still needs to be done. So that's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on these issues, check out our companion blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, and additional resources on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. And join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please leave us five stars and a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, especially Amaris Rancy, Josie Broadfuhrer, Aidan McGahee, and Mike Dugan. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in again next time.